exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. After a second detour into the passages removed from the text of the play for the quarto, but included in the folio, we are back in less disputed territory this week. Shakespeare has studied this scene, Act 2, Scene 2, with a great many references to theatre already, and now the travelling players are about to arrive. I promise they really are coming. Hamlet is winding up his conversation with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, It really feels like we've been putting up with this pair for far too long already, and so we get a sense that he might be finished with them. After the whole conversation about the child actors and their newfound success, whether referring to London or any other city, Hamlet brings the conversation back to Denmark's current political situation. He says, It is not very strange, for mine uncle is king of Denmark, and those that would make mouths at him while my father lived, give twenty, forty, fifty, a hundred ducats apiece for his picture in little. He's likening the Danish people to a theatre audience, whose taste can be fickle. No surprise to him, it's not at all strange that the boy players should be doing so well. Look at his uncle, who is the king of Denmark now, and those that used to make faces or grimace at him while the former king was still alive, are now paying extravagant sums of money to buy souvenir pictures of King Claudius. We've already heard that the currency in Denmark is the crown, a few lines back, and indeed even today the Danish krona is still in use, but the ducat, a word Shakespeare loves to use for craven money-grabbing Europeans whenever he can, was in use all over the continent for trade. Naturally, this shallow, faithless crowd would trade in such filthy lucre, for their exorbitantly priced souvenirs. Hamlet continues, Blood, there is something in this more than natural, if philosophy could find it out. Hamlet curses, God's blood, another minced oath, reduced to blood. There's definitely something abnormal about how people can change their minds like this, if only science or philosophy could figure it out. There's like a shade of a difference here in how Hamlet speaks to these two friends about philosophy compared with his exuberant talk with Horatio earlier in the play. Philosophy can of course be applied to almost any discipline of thinking, science or learning, but certainly Hamlet seems less interested in sharing his thoughts with his present company. Shakespeare finally breaks the tension, or maybe the tedium, by having a flourish of trumpets from within. Guildenstern, poor Guildenstern, gets a line again, whereby he can announce who's here. There are the players. There's really no time left for this little interview between the three young men, and Hamlet shows some of his breeding as he wraps it up. Gentlemen, you are welcome to Elsinore. Your hands come then. The appurtenance of welcome is fashion and ceremony. Let me comply with you in this garb, lest my extent to the players, which I tell you must show fairly outward, should appear more like entertainment than yours. Hamlet's ploy here is to make sure that the two spies know that they are welcome. It's a little tricky because the imagery is not especially accessible, but what I think he's saying is that a proper welcome is accompanied by fashion and ceremony. 
He has observed the ceremony by shaking their hands one more time. He insists that he should comply, a word that will show up much later in another semi-formal context, in this manner, for fear that the welcome he will soon give to the players seem more hospitable than the one he's giving to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. In other words, don't be jealous of the reception that these actors are about to receive. He repeats it one more time. You are welcome. But my uncle, father, and aunt, mother are deceived. This is a sour little reminder of the new king's role. He was his uncle, but now that he's also married to Hamlet's mother, he's his stepfather. Likewise, now that Hamlet's mother is married to his uncle, she's his aunt. This is a great opportunity for an actor to show some more of Hamlet's discomfort with his mother's new marital status. She, perhaps, another faithless person whose shifting alliance and changed taste is beyond natural. Guildenstern is a good employee and he stays focused on the prize. If the king and queen are deceived, he should find out how. So he gets another line here. In what, my dear lord? We now get a curious little line from Hamlet that is open to myriad interpretations. As if letting them in on a secret, he says, I am but mad north-northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. If any of you listening are Hitchcock fans, wondering if perhaps this is yet another line from this play that gave its name to another work of art, sadly, it doesn't appear to be the case. The Hitchcock film, North by Northwest, is apparently so called because its story moves from New York in that direction all the way to the other side of the country, with no particular reference to Hamlet. What our hero seems to be saying is that he's not really mad, just maybe one small compass point, North by Northwest, away from sanity. Is this so that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern can go back to their majesties and tell them that they needn't worry? We then get this next tricky little line. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. To speak honestly, there are a wealth of plausible explanations for this one, and indeed, I'm even going to offer one of my own. The first explanation is that these are two different birds, a hawk, plain and simple, and a heron shaw, or a heron, that was sometimes abbreviated to handsaw in Shakespearean English. I'm not all the way convinced by this, but what it does help with is this idea of the southerly wind. Birds fly in the direction of the wind, and so if the wind is southerly, the watcher will have his back to the sun, and since hawks and herons are different birds with different sizes, that's easy enough. By daylight, I can still tell two very different things apart because I am not mad. Strike one. Meaning number two, a hawk was also a tool used by plaster workers. You'd hold your plaster on the hawk, which was a large, flat, handheld tray from which you could daub the plaster with the trowel or whatever tool you were using. A handsaw, in this reading, is therefore a handsaw. Again, two very different kinds of items. But there's a brilliance of possibilities in this. Whether the audience member was the kind of rich person who knew about birds and hunting or birds of prey, or indeed a groundling more connected to trade and hard work, the analogy works for either audience member. My own personal contribution to all of this is to suggest that a hawk might mean one of the newly popular child actors, given the description of an eerie of children that gave its name to the last episode. And a handsaw might indeed be a preview of the kinds of actors Hamlet hates. In a few weeks' time, we will be hearing his famous advice to the players, 
when he'll say, do not saw the air too much with your hand. Perhaps, in his spectacularly creative mind, the idea of being a hand saw is a poor actor who gesticulates too much. After so much discussion of the old versus new modes and styles of acting, I feel this is entirely plausible. It's a neat button to the end of the scene, and I must say, I'm rather pleased with the idea. Whichever of the three readings you like, there's a play between efficacy and weakness. A hawk is a hunting bird, a heron is less aggressive. A hawk is a supporting tool, while a handsaw is used to cut and to break anything that can be dangerous. A hawk might be a popular child actor, and a handsaw is a less talented nuisance who maybe shouldn't be on the stage anymore. Whichever one you go with, there's definitely room for Hamlet to be letting his erstwhile friends know that he sees right through them, and that he in no way trusts them. He can tell a hawk from a handsaw, or indeed a friend from a spy. Shakespeare gives the two absolutely no chance to argue yet again that they really are here for Hamlet, because we've all heard that too many times already, and nobody is left believing it, probably not even them. And instead, we have yet another entrance. It is not, alas, the players. They are still on the way up the driveway or the garden path or over the moat or whatever way into the castle of Elsinore. But we have heard the trumpets, so we do know they're coming. Instead, we have Polonius back again to speak with Hamlet. He greets all three gentlemen nicely enough. Well be with you, gentlemen. But Hamlet will have some fun at his expense before we get any further. To stay on track and end this scene, eventually, within the standard 20 lines per week that I tend to cover in these podcasts, I'm going to leave it here for this one. Join me next week, as we see Hamlet running rings around Polonius all over again, with a few more metatheatrical nods and jokes to keep us going until these players finally arrive onto the stage where they belong. There'll be some extra materials to go uh, with this episode on the show notes section of the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and I do hope that if you're enjoying it, you'll tell your friends or give a positive rating in iTunes. It does really help. Thanks a million for tuning in, and I'll speak to you next time.